Hey there. Today's episode of The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media, a podcast network and media collective that connects unlikely conversation partners to illuminate what's possible when we let go of fear, practice courage, and embrace difference. Find out more by visiting theolabmedia.com. If you are a Christian, if you uh, profess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you affirm that Christ died on the cross for your sins, regardless of what you feel about resurrection, whiteness is an idle construct. It assumes a position of God. And not just like, you know, I go to church on Wednesday evenings and Sunday mornings, you know, for however long I'd like. Not that granular. What I mean is the way of being in the world assumes God. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench podcast by Theolab Media. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT Ricks. And today we're welcoming a friend to the pod, my dude, my brother, Calfani, Adisa Lawson. Welcome, Calfani. Welcome. Oh, my goodness. Hello, Brandon. Hey, Katie. It's good to see you all. It's good to see you too, man. On today's episode, we're talking about Martin Luther King Jr., the bullshit that happened at the Capitol, and about black people in the United States, around the world more broadly. It's going to be a great show. But before we get into that, once again, welcome to the Mourner's Bench, Calfani. It's really good to have you here, man. Thanks. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. So for the sake of listeners, Calfani, I mean, I hate cheesy introduction questions like, you know, who are you? What do you do? But who are you? What are you passionate about? Who do you love? I am Calfani. And that's important <laughs> to reiterate the obvious because my name is Swahili. I come from fairly Afrocentric parents, both of whom came down to the south from Chicago, one to Atlanta, the other to Talladega. And before that, our folks were kind of around somewhere in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. And so if I'm ever explaining, you know, who I am, like I usually start with my name and then also, you know, where my folks come from. And as much as I can talk about it, and I am passionate about history, living lightly in the world. Living lightly in the world. Say more about that. So, I mean, as, as you all both know, we just purchased our first home. And something that I didn't realize I was so passionate about was doing things as eco-friendly as possible. We bought an old home because we didn't want something we'll have to recycle in another 10 years. We've also enjoyed not driving as much. We bike a lot now. And we're seriously considering structuring our commute so that we can do that whenever we get to something that looks like, you know, in person or a hybrid format. So yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about living lightly on the world in that regard, but also um, anti-blackness is living heavily on to the world. I am dedicated and passionate about unraveling that too and all the things that that means. So we just finished celebrating the annual King holiday and I want to spend a little time talking about Martin Luther King, the, the man, the myth, and the legend. And I mean all of that seriously. I'm not trying to be uh, tongue-in-cheek in that. Like there is an actual human who was Martin Luther King Jr. And then there's a way in which he's become mythicized in our culture. And there are stories we tell about him that have perhaps a foundation in truth or reality or history. And then there's also this way that we've made him legendary. He's now chiseled in stone in Washington, D.C. And we have 15 of his quotes that are most palatable <laughs> chiseled in the stone behind him. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about Martin and like who'd you grow up learning Martin Luther King was and how has that changed throughout the years, if at all? You know, growing up, you know, especially me being from Atlanta, one of the few native Atlantans I hear, uh, I'll joke about quite a bit, but um, yeah, being from Atlanta, you hear about MLK all the time. 
we've reached a point in history, at least in, in my childhood, which was the mid early 90s, was that, you know, MLK was a hero for the city by then, you know. Auburn Avenue is, you know, structured around Ebenezer, the King Center, the historic district. It's a national park district. Yeah, so I mean, MLK is kind of everywhere, aesthetically, but also kind of in the, I don't know what you'd call it, the the history of Atlanta schooling. Like, they, that's the big, you know, the big thing you do when you go for a field trip, you go to the King Center, right? So, yeah, MLK was no secret for me. Yeah. I mean, and that's like black people in the South. I mm-hmm. don't think there was one year that went by where I didn't get to go down to Atlanta. And by get to, I mean, was forced to go down to Atlanta to visit the World of Coke <laughs> and then to visit the King Center every single year. In that order or like? Mm, not always, but sometimes. I mean, after after the 15th time you've been down, it doesn't matter the order. It's going to be the same every time. Yeah. Period. I have a dream. <laughs> all of God's children, oh black and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants. Oh God. my God! I'm sorry. I'm done. I might do that a few more times. <laughs> my brother Martin, Katie, what about you? I didn't grow up in the South nor near Atlanta, so I didn't go to the King Center and such until I was in my late 20s when I moved here. But growing up, I understood King mostly in the context of his I Have a Dream speech. I mean, he connects those images of black and white children playing together with the same Isaiah images where the lions and lambs are like cuddling up for a nap. Children are playing around a snake's den. We talk about it as this image of the peaceable kingdom. And in many ways, that really worked with what my image of of what peace should be. Everyone getting together and getting along. And I was shaped by Presbyterians who in their writings claim to dwell in the tension, but in their practice or I guess I should say our practice kind of glossing over and sweeping under the rug any kind of conflict. So what shifted in me was the realization that peace as the lack of tension or conflict isn't possible. I mean, what shifted for me was a realization that the injustices that exist are far more prevalent and far more subtle and hidden than I had known or learned. And so what shifted for me is a deepening understanding of King's message of nonviolence while witnessing to the truth of these injustices. So what I think I've come to realize over the years is King's dream is as impossible in this broken world as Isaiah's vision. But what is possible is the daily practice of nonviolence and truth-telling that incrementally, maybe, gets us closer to that dream. I don't know, Ricks, because in some ways I feel like King's dream, like it, it depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the sort of idealized, mythicized, legendized version of King's dream, then I think, yeah, that seems like an impossibility. But I think one of the things that I've come to realize and be convicted of is that King told some hard truths. The versions that we speak of, of these speeches, we talk about them in a way as if it's already been achieved, right? <laughs> so King gives this speech at the March on Washington, gives a bunch of other speeches, and then is assassinated. And then all of a sudden we get schools being integrated. We get two black people living in the white neighborhood and the rest of the black folks being redlined to the impoverished neighborhoods in town. I think there's a way in which the mythicized version is an impossibility Mm. and it's not a factuality either. But if you're thinking about the fact that Martin was actually calling America back to itself and saying like, yo, you've promised all these things, you've said all these things, and none of them are realities. Hmm. He wasn't painting some sort of um, utopian vision in the future. He was talking about something that was extremely hard to do. And that dream still hasn't been realized unless we suggest that the state we are in now, which he did paint 
a picture of is the dream itself. I might call it a nightmare, but we are living in what Martin Luther King outlined and we have been doing so ever, like since before King was around and mm. since well after he was assassinated. Mm. <laughs> so you spark a memory of mine is a poem by Carl Wendell Hines from the uh, mid 60s. It applies to MLK, I think. It's uh let us build monuments to their glory, you know, because it's much better to, I mean, easier to build a monument than it is to make a better world. Yeah. It's like, hmm. And, it, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting. You know, my fraternity is guilty for having put up an entire statue of MLK, um, the first black man to have a statue in Washington, D.C. But, uh, but yeah, he's become this kind of hero. Now, the organizing that, you know, Coretta Scott King did in the wake of his assassination aside, he was highly unpopular during his time, highly unpopular, like kind of in the same way that Black Lives Matters is for now. Well, now for some people, but now he's become this folk hero. And there's like this interesting shift that I think, you know, you're you're talking about, you know, building monuments. (laughs) Right. I think that's what that is. So this year, the King holiday is really hard for me, like for real, for real. It's hard for me. It's been hard for me for quite some time. And it's mostly because. I feel like white folks love to talk about Martin Luther King on or around January 15th every single year. But it seems even more difficult this year to think about honoring King's toned down palatable legacy after the last four years of uh, Agent Orange in the White House and what we witnessed at the Capitol building on January the 6th. Yeah, and just in case you've been in hibernation and under a rock for the last few weeks, um, what happened was that the uh, House and Senate were about to gather to certify the electoral votes on Wednesday. It's the final step in the selection of the next president, and Trump was at the same time hosting a rally at the White House to challenge the election again. People were gathered with Trump gear from head to toe, t-shirts that said Civil War 1-6-2021, Confederate flags, full, full military gear. Trump incited them to march on Congress. He even suggested at one point that he was going with them, though apparently the White House officials stopped that. He wasn't going anyway. Be real. <laughs> His job is to fire them up and incite them. He's not going to be caught there, but they stormed the Capitol building, broke windows, flooded into the building, tacked guards, trashed offices. They vandalized and stole property and the list goes on. Right. I saw one meme that had, or I don't know if it was a meme or a GIF. I don't know what the kid, the GIFs move, right? Is that right? Yep. I'm still trying to figure this out. <laughs> I, a, I saw a meme that had a side by side of the Capitol building on the day of the inauguration of Trump and then the picture of the Capitol building on January the 6th. And then you swipe and it had a picture of Pride Rock at the beginning of the Lion King. And then on the other side, it had Pride Rock once right. uh, Scar had taken <laughs> over. All that said, what do we make of that? Like, what do we make of a country that is willing to chisel Martin Luther King in stone and place him in D.C. like two miles from where all this shit was happening on January the 6th? But the country's also willing to tolerate, celebrate, normalize, and perpetuate this sort of blatant showing of white supremacy. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing incoherent about it, period. And, and I have to say that's my, I won't say my frustration, but like the adjustment or the finishing of the equation that I'm not seeing in a lot of like, you know, wrestling with this because, you know, I spent a lot of time like trying to explain to folks, you know, not in an American context, you know, what's up with the tension between race, but also America's made all of this progress. Like, how does one configure that this is still a racist, white supremacist structure? You know, Barack Obama was president for a while. It's like if if you have the white supremacists, 
who are able to storm what I've heard called the Cathedral of American Democracy, which is an interesting, an, an, oh yeah, ooh, an interesting, interesting, um, you know, something to think about. But you have these people who are comfortable and able to storm the Capitol building. They're able to do so without a reprimand or any kind of visible force because yep. the force that is present, and I say force loosely, that is present is not built to enact violence upon said group of people because they know <laughs> the moment. <laughs> you, well, you see what's happening now in Five Dead, right? You know, the, we're not talking about thugs and gangsters. We're talking about people who something happened to them in a riot. Yep. You have this, and then you've got MLK on the other side of the pond, right? Um, you know, memorialized. Yeah. There's nothing incoherent about white mob violence being at the Capitol, doing whatever it wants to do, and having memorialized, whitewashed, literally, um, Negroes being used to service these kinds of these narratives. No, it's there's nothing incoherent about it. Which is to say, we see the math, and if you you finish the equation it suggests this thing this dichotomy is baked into the american ethos i would even say our constitutional structures law and perhaps in our religion and so i hear you mlk day is hard it, it's 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 hard for me this year too though you know because where are we going to volunteer in person right but but for me it's another it's a it's another day and a baptist i can't remember his name a baptist preacher really messed me up like maybe five six years ago asking me when did the day change right like there's a reason for the civil rights movement being a particular moment and the shifts that came after that, such as Voting Rights Act, which was rescinded or essentially gutted in 2013, right? So there's a reason we're back at the same place dealing with the same things. There's a continuity. When did the day change? We've been celebrating MLK Day and they've been evicting Negroes. They've been killing Negroes. There's been mob violence. Racism has run <laughs> rampant. These things are all in the mix together. They subtend each other. Uh, they absolutely do. And... I like the idea that there's actually nothing incoherent about this. Like we have <laughs> a very nice picture, a whitewashed picture of Martin Luther King sitting a couple of blocks across the pond from this white mob violence at the Capitol building. It's par for the course. And because we have King's statue up there, we don't have to acknowledge that we have any racist tendencies anymore because we've put him on the mall. We've already done it and we can move on. To this point, so I think every black person in the world had the same reaction. For me, it wasn't quite surprise. It wasn't quite sadness. Like, I have no mushy feelings for the Cathedral of America. I have nothing in my heart for the Capitol building. There's no warm fuzzies. But for me, I do still think it was a certain, I had a certain level of disgust. Like, I know it's been said a lot already, but I was disgusted because of all the times black folks protesting peacefully have been tear gassed, beaten, busted up, shot at. And a lot of black folks have been noting, like, yo, we ain't done half of this shit. Even when we out here trying to protest peacefully, we out here just trying to hold a sign and chant Black Lives Matter. Y'all start tear gassing us, and these jokers are busting into the Capitol building. But nine times out of ten, even when we are, like, rallying and protesting, we fucking up our own shit. We ain't fucking up the Capitol building. We are in our own neighborhoods messing up stuff, and they still want to shoot us for that. So, like, I think for me, it's just the level of hypocrisy that's also on display it's all on twitter like it's easy to figure out this is about to happen this is real they are organizing this in public and nobody is responding like what like what do you make of it 
Jordan was watching CNN and MSNBC and they had Trump in a little window over a little box muted, right? They never went to him. Jordan's like, I'm going to turn on Fox and watch what's happening because they were the only ones covering it. Like we're watching him do this. Then he's saying everything that's going to happen. And then we're watching them march throughout the entire thing. The pictures side by side of the Black Lives Matter protest in D.C. And then this shit, those are overwhelming. It should be shocking to white folks. I appreciate that. It, it should be shocking because I feel like it should be shocking to me. I'm not shocked, though. Like, I'm not just because on one end, engaging in a purely abstract, like kind of gaming out how it should go. Yes, the police should not treat some certain protesters or mobs differently. You know, there was a threat of, you know, $10,000 federal charges for damaging buildings in the midsummer <laughs> amidst protesting um, for black lives. And then now, you know, I don't know how much those windows cost. <laughs> but what I do know is they were destroying that building. And I know they're charging folks, you know, they're using software and stuff to do so. Abstractly, like, yeah, we were not treated in that way at all. We wouldn't get we wouldn't have gotten that far. There's no way. There's no way. Black people would have still been sitting on the sidewalk with zip ties because yeah. they would have ran out of yeah. handcuffs for all the folks yep. they would have arrested the moment that somebody would have stepped on the wrong surface yet alone like bust out a whole window are you I'm it doesn't surprise that should surprise me I'm not right at all at, at, at all um it's part of the course if I'm, if we're doing the math it, it it that's how it goes it's not surprising for me because I think there's all these conversations about intercultural competence diversity equity and inclusion I'm here to tell you those things won't save you. <laughs> but there are these discussions about what it means to be white. And people are always trying to say, we have to define what whiteness is outside of oppression, outside of domination. My suggestion is you may not be able to do that. Why this was able to happen in the manner that it did is because what we saw is what is okay for white people to do. It's perfectly fine for white people to rage. It's perfectly fine for white people to be angry. It's perfectly fine for white people to be violent. Now we find ways to domesticate that, to professionalize it, and to make it seem as if we aren't as bad as Donald Trump or as bad as the MAGA supporters who stormed the Capitol. But white folks all around the country, all around the world, are participating in this sort of violence every day. And I don't think white folks have created the space. No, I don't think white folks have, like, they desire the space to figure out how to identify themselves and exist in the world beyond being oppressive, beyond being violent, beyond being deceitful, beyond being criminal. Like, at the end of the day, I think that what we saw was what white people want to be, even if they're ashamed of it on the surface. Or maybe I should say white people have been socialized to be. <laughs> no, I think you can push it that far. Many white people, we don't have like an understanding of what country we came from. or where, I mean, because we are all immigrants to this place. But white and dark or white and black started at the time when the enslavement of black folks started. So it has always been, white has always been defined as the oppressor so so it is like in to call yourself white or you wouldn't call yourself white i would call myself white. <laughs> to call myself white mean necessarily has that um it's tied to that enslavement or that oppression so i don't necessarily have anything to add to that but i do say i do think you can probably push it that far i would love to <laughs> <laughs>
I would absolutely love to. I, I think you're I think you're 100 percent right. I would go further to say it's it's a it's a socialized thing, but it also has to do with investments in capital. Yeah. Gender. And there's ecological implications. Yeah. All of that is whiteness because I think for a lot of folks especially you know you start talking about white black you know what we're considering is phenotype <laughs> I see you and I see that you are you know such and such it's it's so much more than that theologically ontologically when you start talking about social life capital it's all there so yeah I'd, I'd push it far talk to me about the theological aspects of this Calfani let's go there for a second this is just my thinking and I could be wrong I'm willing to admit that but if you are a christian if you uh, profess that jesus christ is your lord and savior if you affirm that christ died on the cross for your sins regardless of what you feel about resurrection whiteness is an idol construct it assumes a position of god and not just like you know i go to church on wednesday evenings and sunday mornings you know for however long i'd like not that granular. What I mean is the way of being in the world assumes God. It assumes I can consume without having to tend to the land or live lightly onto the world. It assumes property. It assumes I own this. I have a claim to that. <laughs> like so, All of these things that construct our reality, like whiteness, has a place in all of this. And it does not affirm that which comes before it, which is Omago Dei. God's um, constructing of this world, you know? And so I think pushing a back against or unpacking, dismantling white cosmology and all of the things that are structured by it, it is a theological project through and through. And if you're looking for resources on this, I would recommend going to grab this book called The History of White People by a black woman named Nell Irvin Painter. Nell outlines kind of the historical project of whiteness and what it meant for whiteness to try to reconcile all these disparate white people to itself, right? You're not Irish, you're white. Everybody is white, 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 because that's a source of political power. And the entire project of, I would say, American democracy has been to try to figure out not how we create a melting pot, not how we create this multicultural world, but how do we create a space wherein all things have been reconciled to whiteness. And the issue has been black folks have never been able to be reconciled. We've been able to figure out how to pull in Asian folks, Latinx folks, but only from certain countries with certain phenotypes. We can't do the ones that are too proud of their heritage. We can't at all do that. And so in this sort of way that Christianity is based on this idea that you have a deity, a God, um, who's loving, who's creative, and then you have a demigod or an anti-deity or a devil, a Satan, whose goal it is to destroy the earth or make us sin and make us do things that are awful. Like, if you're positioning whiteness and democracy and America as a religion, even if that's a subconscious thing, and you're groomed in the Christian tradition, you automatically need a Satan. You need a devil, and black and brown people who are too proud of their culture and too honest about the way the whiteness functions are the devils that cannot be reconciled. And so you're going to treat them as such. Oof. That seems like a good spot for a break. Let's take a quick one, and we'll be right back. Van Jones asked a question on CNN. He asked, was this the end of something 
or was it the beginning? I still think it's to be determined. And I also don't know if that's the right question to ask. I think that I would say this is just merely a continuation of something that's been going on for a really, really long time. It's neither a beginning nor an end. And that's part of the issue. When we talk about race and we talk about Martin Luther King Jr., we want to treat all these moments as if they happen. And then we go to a completely different place. We always are in the business of starting over and detaching ourselves from the broader historical narrative. In my community, we talk a lot about Tulsa in the 1920s and how black folks and black Wall Street was a thing. And black folks had made all these advances and during the Reconstruction era. And because white people were mad about it, white people came and massacred that space, killed black people, destroyed their property, destroyed their homes because they were tired of black folks being political subjects as opposed to being political objects and or political symbols. The same thing happens in 1906 in Atlanta with the race riots. I like to call all of these things massacres because I think when we call them race riots, what people automatically have in their heads because of the ways that we've been socialized around history is they have an image of black people rioting. That's not what happened. This was a, both Atlanta and Tulsa were moments where in white folks were so mad about not even the political power black people were garnering, but just the fact that black people were able to live free of the white gaze, free of white authoritarianism, free of the plantation politics that continue to govern not just the South, but the entire country and the world. I mean, in Calfani, in preparation for this, you sent a video about Wilmington. Yeah, so Wilmington is a product of the way that reconciliation between the North and South post-Civil War took place. In that period we call Reconstruction. <laughs> Frankly, I think Reconstruction also frames what took place on Wednesday. You know, visibly... <laughs> interesting ways but just you know reminders of how deeply rooted some of our history is and how yeah having confederate flags flying in the capital you know that was something people died died so that to prevent and someone just walks willy-nilly up the steps now so during reconstruction you had fear of black suffrage so you had this newly freed negro population post-civil war you had you know the southern planter economy that was ravished by the war to be sure but in the same way that we go and we assist other countries say germany or the way that we assist israel and kind of you know structuring their project in kind of a post-war fashion what took place between the north and the south was more so siblings coming together okay we fought and all is well and the thing that didn't take place which needs to take place and which i think we're seeing now in the hesitation in punishing trump for his inciting insurrection the south was not punished the things that brought about the slave economy and all of the things the religion the legal landscape and frankly just the animosity the kind of i'd say antagonisms between poor whites and poor blacks i mean or uh, newly freed blacks um, there was all of this kind of like powder keg of of things going on in a reconstruction project and so wilmington was frankly a situation where North Carolina was about to send some black folks to Washington, D.C. And they said, no, 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 no. And so, frankly, they overturned the government. And, you know, I would encourage others to look into it. It is a, it's one event in a series of events that take place that are clear that the North did not snub out all of the things that fed into I'd say a kind of Nazism that predates the Nazis. And so they didn't snub that stuff out. And here we are, 170, 150, uh, 160 years later, with a Confederate flag flying freely in the nation's capital. 
by invitation, I would I, w- I would push to say. And so, Brandon, I think you're right on to mention the riots, Red Summer of 1919, bombing of Philadelphia in 1985. There are a number of different places where this stuff, you know, rears its ugly head. And it makes me ask again, when did the day change? It's, it's the same day, same day, different time. But the reality is, even with Wilmington, the way the story was told was that the black people were over there. They were they had weapons. They were about to overthrow the government. They were about to screw everybody up. So we got to go kill them. And so for years, the narrative was black people were out of control. So we had to figure out a way to put them back in their place. But that's not what actually happened. Because when you get to bomb someone, when you get to massacre someone, when you get to overthrow a government, when you get to stage a coup and you're white, you st- you're the victor no matter what. And the victors always get to write the history. They get to twist the history in a way that benefits them in the narrative. So at the end of the day, Van Jones's question wasn't actually the right question. I think the question still remains, in what way is this a continuation of what's been going on since the inception of the country? With Wilmington, the president at that time was McKinley. He knew about the massacre. They told him about the massacre and he didn't say anything about it. And why? Because it was politically advantageous for him to wait for it to be used in the election. I think for me, this is still a continuation of the same thing. The president didn't just know about what was happening. The president called for it, incited it. And so I think we have to ask the question about in what ways is whiteness, white supremacy now going to go and hide for a little while? It's, It's like, okay, this is too much. This is too much. I'm, I was talking to my cousin the other day and she said she was driving home. And as she was driving home, there are two or three folks in her neighborhood who have Trump flags or had Trump flags. And as she was talking to me, she was like, yep, that one's gone. Yep, that one's gone too. Mm, that one's gone too. I wonder what they're going to put up next. And this, this was on January the 7th. So the day after this stuff happened at the Capitol, the day of January 6th, all these Trump flags are still flying to the neighborhood. But now January 6th has happened and I'm going to take my Trump flag down. So did you did you have a transformation? Did, like, Were you transformed by the renewing of your mind overnight? Or does whatever made you feel like it was appropriate and or necessary for you to support Donald Trump, is that still there and you're just hiding it now? Because when it comes back out, it's going to be something different. But I'm still going to recognize it. It might be a different person. It might be a different political party. It might be a different social media platform, but the impulse is the same. So I think that's the question we need to be asking is where is this going to fester? Not if this is an end or a beginning, it's a continuation of the same story. It absolutely is a continuation, but also it has been hidden. Like, for example, I didn't realize that the entire structure of the Georgia runoff election was based on the desire to keep black folks out of the Senate. So so it wasn't until a video that you sent in, in preparation for this that I realized that that made it even more remarkable because that run, the way that Georgia does the runoff is different than any other place because they figured that the black vote would vote in a block and the whites might vote on, they might spread out. But if you had a runoff with two people, then your whites would always vote for the white candidate. And so the black candidate would never win. So that's how hidden we've been able to make white supremacy within our election system, within our quote unquote democracy. And that is 
what makes Warnock's election even more significant. But hidden for whom is the question, right? That, right, right. Like, that's the thing that trips me out. Like, black folks have known this. This is every day of our lives. So to further what you're saying, Katie, at the end of the day, the gentleman who introduced the Georgia runoff system said, ultimately, the black voting block is too strong to break up. There's a time in American history where black folks were voting for Republicans because Republicans had a different platform. When the Democratic Party emerged, black folks shifted because that party's platform represented, to a certain extent, their political needs, right? And so at the end of the day, it's like black folks know the ways that the system is designed as a whole to disadvantage us. And I mean, I can't tell you, I'm not a particularly hopeful person. And so with this whole Georgia runoff situation, I was ready for them to call the race for uh, Kelly Leffler and for David Perdue, because what I knew is the Southern strategy, if and when there is a runoff, yes, all of the white folks are going to vote for the white candidate. And that will be what overcomes the black voting block. It's designed to overcome a block that is so powerful that they had to figure out a way how to systemically disadvantage them. Now, the question remains to the extent that this is a continuation of the same story in the same project, the Republicans still control the local legislature. And so in what ways does the Republican Party in the state of Georgia now work to once again systemically disadvantage black people and people of color in the state of Georgia? They got two years to figure it out. And they, they got a lot of data from this particular election. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, to be honest, you know, thinking about Carol Anderson's white rage, if you're into thinking about the history of, you know, kind of some would consider black progress and then white pushback. White lash. White lash. Yes, exactly. Like we've seen um, on Wednesday. And so I'm interested to see what the shift is going to be, because, you know, ultimately we still have a, a gutted Voting Rights Act. So there's no checks, we'll say, for overt voter suppression. You know, um, you know, having all these folks who've been registered and voted duly, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. And especially with Wednesday's events, like how do you, what's going to be the next move? And I think that's a great point, Brandon. Pay attention to that. So I'm amazed at myself or astonished, astonished, not amazed, disturbed also, that I'm still learning stuff now, right? I mean, I know that I still have stuff to learn. I'm more clued in than I was 10 years ago, but there's still so much stuff that I don't know. So there's a whole hell of a lot of shit that other people don't know that are white folks also. I'm not sure what to do with that. But what I do know right now is there's no way that they can impeach Trump in 12 days. Why not? They approved a fucking uh, Supreme Court justice in, in about the same amount of time. I agree. Whether it happens or not, though. I'm just saying um, white people it, can do whatever the fuck they want to do whenever they want to do it. It's what they choose to do. You're right. You're right. The it, point it's a- is, it's not surprising that you don't know it. It is by design. There are black folks who don't realize that as well, because the whole thing is contingent on a dumb public. That's why when Republicans get in power, they want to defund higher education, defund the police. No, don't do that. But let's defund higher education. We don't want those resources going to people because if the people are educated, they're going to see what we're doing behind the scenes. Right. And the education system, even before you get to higher education, is is all about regurgitating information and lack of critical thinking skill development for students. And they're telling them stuff that isn't real. I mean, like the difference between North Carolina and, and Georgia even is different in terms of what students are learning about history. I'm glad that regardless of what happens about the 
impeachment. I am glad that they're keeping it in the news because my people have a really good track record of seeing something going, oh, that's horrible, and then moving on again to daily life. And so in some ways, acknowledging that it's a continuation and continuing to keep it in the public sphere helps my people not forget that there's got to be a better option or I mean there's got to be a better plan uh, but that is one way that it's helping but you're right anything can happen if people want to do it one thing that I can imagine happening going forward which which will be both a liability and a benefit to white folks in the state of Georgia I can see the Georgia legislature trying to pass a law now that does away with the runoff rule majority wins if you get the most votes in the first round, you win the election because that may actually benefit them at this juncture. So I, I think for me, and, I, and I'm not mad at you or mad at anybody, I think I'm just trying to highlight all of this stuff is done by design and it's contingent on us not knowing things. And at the end of the day, why the project that is whiteness and white supremacy, it was essential for people to identify more with whiteness than they identified with their own ethnic or cultural background because they wanted people to all say, we're good. I don't have the belief that 90% of the people that people in the, on the planet are good, but I do have the thought that 90% of the people on the planet desire to be perceived as such. And if they actually told the truth to white folks that we have designed this system to ensure we can stay in power, they would actually lose some of the support that they need in order to further their evil ways. And so you have to think, oh, this is a great rule. I have to think this is really good. This is for my own good. I mean, our pastors have been doing that for ages, trying to convince us that there are these things that are for our own good and for our own benefit when really they're designed to keep us tithing and keep us spiritually dependent on the pastor and that congregation for any source of life. Wow. I don't want to step on those toes on that bench today. Any last comment? Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. <laughs> Plainly put, yeah, and I I always go back to just early American history, just thinking about the origins of the project, and frankly, you know, thinking about its foundation. It's the same structure, right? You've got you know newly freed Negroes who are essentially cheap labor. You have whole economies, and you have poor white folks, right, who are competing. You know, their their real enemy is the person that they have to compete for a job for right they're stealing our jobs and so the education system is going to be structured by it you know mcgraw hill is going to continue their truncated versions of history which i'm interested how they'll structure wednesday all right are they patriots are they terrorists concerned citizens like right like how, how do they handle that history and so and yeah i mean you know maybe the school pipeline is is built to produce this labor force right maybe it's not about education but the but the the architecture is there the history is there and and it goes deep and we can forecast what the reaction is going to be because people are invested in whiteness it's 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 what i know it, it's rather what they know and much like other things that are not good for us they they got to have it 
gotta have my whiteness when we were in North Carolina and doing the Moral Monday movement and we had protests in the Capitol everything and even the Black Lives Matter movement or protests that we've been on they're all very cleanly structured and and they're the people who are organizing have talked with the police they've talked with the government they've they've built coalitions like even when we walked into the North Carolina Capitol building everything what like people told us exactly where to stand if you wanted to be arrested you stood here if you didn't want to be arrested you stood there they came in and warned you to get out and then at the moment they were going to start arresting that's when people who were trained said okay now's the time that you walk out while they start arresting folks that's what it means to participate in the system that's what it means like king was doing to say this is what you say this is who you say that you all are that's what patriotism is to work within the system that exists what happened on wednesday that's not patriotism that's not even participating in a flawed democracy Ooh, katie i i think they're patriots oh Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> I think they're patriots. I see what you mean. It, it's just, you know, that's the kind of, yeah, I think that's the kind of myth making or like at least rhetorically, like that's what we do to, to kind of make that thing that I said is coherent, coherent. That is the textbook definition of a patriot. It is mob violence. You know, it suggested they were they were just like the early American patriots, you know, in fueling them up to do this kind of mob violence. You know, they're fighting for their country. And to be sure, there's 75 million people who voted in affirmation of the person that they were fueled by. And so the history suggests that's who they are. Calfani, you introduced me to Frank Wilderson a long time ago, Afro-pessimist. And a quote that I read in one of his recent books, I think the book is entitled Afro-pessimism. He writes, blacks do not function as political subjects. Instead, our flesh and energies are instrumentalized for post-colonial, immigrant, feminist, LGBTQ, transgender, and workers' agendas. These so-called allies are never authorized by black agendas predicated on black ethical dilemmas. A black radical agenda is terrifying to most people on the left because it emanates from a condition of suffering for which there is no imaginable strategy for redress, no narrative of social, political, or national redemption. I think at the end of the day, people want black folks, they want Stacey Abrams, they want Martin Luther King, they want Barack Obama, you, me, every black person who might be able to speak to function as political symbols and never political subjects, never humans who are able to advocate for their own wants, their own needs, their own desires, and to be in control of those wants, needs, and desires without any sort of gaze from people who aren't us. And I don't know if it's possible for a black person to ever take on the role of a patriot, not in the white imagination, not in the American political economy. To Calfani's point, that role is reserved for the men and the women who stood out there on January the 6th trying to burn down the Capitol building. So when we see black folks protesting. That's not a patriotic act. That's black folks advocating for themselves. And they, but you know, black lives matter. That's an abstraction. That's a symbol. It's a political agenda if you take the time to get to know it, but it's not a patriotic act. I don't ever hear white folks who attend those rallies saying that black, that the, that we are participating in a patriotic act. That doesn't come out of people's mouths because that's reserved for white folks. So I guess that seems like a really good spot for a break. Let's take a quick one and we'll be right back with our altar call. So 
the time has come and the hour is nigh. We've come once again to the end of an episode and everybody knows what that means. We've got to go back to the altar and we've got to tear it for the spirit. Some of y'all been acting up, y'all been acting crazy, and you need to sit on this hill mourners bench until something stirs in your soul and your life is changed. So, is there one? Wow, so you ask, is there one? I was trying to figure out who I was going to start with. Um, I think right now I'm going to start with Betsy DeVos and Elaine Chow, who are both on the cabinet, Secretary of Education-ish, and Secretary of Transportation, who both resigned from the cabinet instead of trying to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office, which is a cowardly act. And really, they did it so that they could look like they have credibility. I mean, the fact that they have been participating in this crap for so long and now want to say, oh, but I did the you know, remarkable thing about stepping away. Nope, nope, nope. The remarkable thing would have been to take action four years ago, but definitely to have taken action now to remove him from office. So I think that's who I'm going to start with on the bench. On the bench, I would place those who took part in insurrection at the nation's capital, who got to experience but a fraction of the kind of violence that is enacted on black people and others who push back against anti-blackness, those who were disappointed that they got treated like, you know, they were rioters, Black Lives Matters protesters. I think they have a lot of work to do. And I think they have illustrated for us how far we've really come. I think for me, I'm going to put on the bench white folks who desire to distance themselves from this and to act like this is not us and or them. I think the easiest move to make at this juncture is to say, well, Trump is so horrible. Trump is so awful. And here's what we got to do to overcome Trump. But Trump's not the issue. I think it's easy to say, let's just distance ourselves from the Republican Party. But the Republican Party is not the issue. This is a continuation of a broader story and a broader project. And so we have to put on the bench those who are auditioning to be the next Trump. Josh Hawley from Missouri, after all was said and done, after all that happened on Wednesday, still rejected to the election results where there's no evidence of any voter fraud, no evidence of anything other than a fair and free election still wanted to contest. Like that's the same thing that those people the outside were doing. It was criminal. It was obstructionist. Didn't he also say that it was Antifa that was there that was breaking everything? I mean, ridiculous crap. I'm tired of people conveniently blaming Antifa every time something happens. Like anytime that there's any sort of mess occurring, like we gonna blame it on Antifa. Let's ask a deeper question. Why is Antifa a thing? You see that you see it. You see the like you you see the mathematics. You see it, yeah. Because the, the thing is, Antifa is the specter or the thing on which I can place or th- my responsibility in this. Right. Yes. So Josh Hawley, you're on the bench. Ted Cruz, you're on the bench. Uh, Tommy Tuberville, football coach, you on the bench. <laughs> All of y'all are on the bench because I see you, and I see that you're auditioning to be the person who can take up the mantle that Donald Trump has been carrying for the last four to six years and you want his supporters in 2024 Mm -hmm. and you want to achieve that goal using the same rhetoric of hatred, racism um, that he's been using to perpetuate his presidency Mm -hmm. 
for the last four years. So um, you're on the bench. That's a wrap on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much for listening. And many thanks once again to you, Calfani, for joining us. Hey, do my folks a solid. If you're enjoying The Mourner's Bench, take a moment to subscribe wherever you may be listening. And if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the podcast. And if you're still listening at this point, you really do love us. If you need to deny that, you can do that. But you know what? It's true. We all know it. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash theolabmedia and drop us a little love offering in the basket. There's no gift too small. All right, good people. That is a wrap. Tune back in on Thursday. We are so excited to welcome the Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver to the Mourner's Bench for a conversation about the church after COVID-19 and what the church is becoming in the midst of COVID-19. You don't want to miss it. In my old days, I would have called it a Holy Ghost good time. So we'll see y'all on Thursday. Peace.